Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a new series called Heaven and Hell, based upon Dr. Newfeld's new book, Heaven and Hell. So turning your Bibles to Psalm chapter 90, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Coming to Terms with Heaven and Hell. I once had a conversation about life and death with an old friend. You know, through a long series of events, he had gone from being an atheist to becoming fairly convinced there was a God. And that was a good start, but there was so much further to go. But he was on a journey. He had also recently become convinced that Jesus was probably the Son of God, and yet there was still a, a further distance to go until he came to know Christ as Savior and Lord. And still I was overjoyed at the progress he was making. The trajectory showed me he was going in the right direction. But somehow our conversation moved to the subject of the afterlife. And my old friend told me that he had no reason for believing that he would survive his own death. He said, if there is a life after death, I guess I'll find out then. Well, in a way that made sense to him. The idea of heaven and hell seemed like mere speculation. He said that no one's ever gone to the other side and come back reporting what awaited us there. And furthermore, as he saw it, even if someone were to make that claim, There was no objective way of examining that claim. See, from his perspective, it was not possible to investigate the matter. And on that basis, he thought one needed to live one's life with a moral compass toward God, and that's the best one could do. And furthermore, should there be a judgment at the end of this life, a moral life would stand one in good stead, but speculation about the afterlife was of no advantage at all. Well, I said to him that I never knew anyone who took a journey from which they were never to return, who didn't make some kind of inquiry about what awaited him or her. See, I imagined a person going from North America to Europe with the intent that one should live the rest of one's life there. Wouldn't the person contemplating such a move want to know something about what awaited them on the other side of the ocean? I mean, what language do they speak? What Customs do they observe? What kind of houses do they live in? How are relationships maintained? I mean, what's the cost of living? What jobs are in high demand? And will finding work be difficult? Does not everyone inquire about what greets them when they're about to take a journey from which they will not return? The wise always plan. And in the case of death, would it not be wise to know if nothing or something awaited us? For we will not return. The answer to our inquiry would lead one to think carefully about how one leads one's life today. If nothing awaited us, then all the decisions that we make now are inconsequential for the afterlife. So then let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But if something awaits us, a cavalier attitude about this world's decisions is foolhardy. Indeed, are we not right? to spend a great deal of time and energy investigating what the evidence might be for the journey after death. Well, he agreed. But still, he said, I mean, how can one know if there are preparations to be made? You know, if death is the extinction of all consciousness, no preparations are required. But even if another land awaits us, how is one to prepare for that which is unknown? See, the great irony of the ancient pharaohs is they prepared for the afterlife by being sealed into their tombs with the things that would be required in the life to come. And yet, those things were stolen by grave robbers. See, in the end, the only use of all of those things was that they were again used in this life and not in the one to come. And so, how foolish it would be 
to make preparations for the life to come based on faulty evidence leading to faulty reasoning. Well, again, I said that the Bible provides the reader with a travel brochure on the next life. If the Bible comes from God, then it would be imperative to learn all that awaits us. And he agreed, and so our conversations continued. See, the importance of knowing whether the Bible is the Word of God became the imperative conversation. I want to pause here and have us think about the pervasiveness of human beliefs about the afterlife. See, the reason I recounted my conversation with an old friend is that the belief that death is the cessation of existence continues to remain a belief only among a minority of the Earth's populations. All the cultures of the Earth have a history of believing in a life that follows this one. Buddhism and Hinduism speak of reincarnation or the transmigration of souls into different bodies. But for both of these religions, the goal is to escape the cycle of endless deaths and rebirths. Buddhists hope for nirvana. Hindus hope for a return to be with Brahman. And in either case, the goal is to escape personal consciousness and be swallowed up into the one reality, forever losing individual identity. Now, in some ways, that belief of the eventual ending of individual existence, well, that's very close to the atheistic belief of the end of personal consciousness. Still, both Hindus and Buddhists affirm life beyond the grave. Well, there are other views as well. Spiritualists think about an afterworld in which souls evolve and continue to interact with the living through mediums. Now, from their perspective, the life to come has a, a great deal of continuity with the present life. While the ancient Greeks and Romans, while they believed in the underworld and the god of the underworld, Greeks tended to believe that the body was the prison house for the soul. So it was necessary, therefore, that one escape earthly attachments, lest the soul not be able to break with the body. While they were not alone in their understanding of the realm of the dead, which included conscious existence, you know, whether it be the first peoples of North America, the Aztecs, ancient peoples from India, the Celts, the Etruscans, or the Romans, afterlife beliefs are held in every culture on earth. If the matter of an afterlife really was as tenuous as Western naturalists believe it to be, why is the belief of an afterlife so globally persistent? And furthermore, not only do all cultures hold to an afterlife, but they believe that the things that are done in this life have some kind of a bearing on what's experienced in the life to come. You see, Western naturalists must despair that survey after survey finds that, by far, the majority of North Americans not only believe in an afterlife, but they also believe in heaven. Indeed, far more North Americans believe in heaven than actually believe in God. And that's to say, they believe that there will be a continuation of existence after death and that the life to come will be pleasant and delightful. And most all who believe in heaven actually think they're going there as well. Because most North Americans have a very low consciousness of sin, the idea of personal guilt that would disqualify them from heaven seems like an unrealistic danger. For those who believe in hell, most simply assume it's reserved for the world's most monstrous villains. So let's ask the most basic questions. Why does everyone hope in an afterlife? Well, there are several possible explanations for the pervasiveness of this belief. You know, some might argue that superstition is the explanation, but, but why such an enduring superstition? Why such a global, supercultural superstition? 
That question isn't easily answered. Well, I know some argue that this widely held belief is because of human fear of death. And of course, it is true that all human beings harbor a dread of death. We were created to live and not to die. And the fall of humanity into sin has introduced something that's unnatural into our being. Intuitively, we know that we were created to live and not to die. But the abhorrence of death does not necessitate the idea of an afterlife. Atheists, like the rest of humanity, also fear death. But I would argue that the reason atheists often deny the afterlife is because they have a greater fear than death. Their fear is the fear of God and judgment. And so they imagine their own myths in which the afterlife consists of nothing. You know, in this way, they escape the consequences of their own misdeeds. And hence, to use fear as an explanation of afterlife beliefs, well, that's a sword that cuts both ways. It can as easily describe naturalism and atheism as it can be used to describe the person that believes there's something after the grave. The most plausible explanation of the persistence of afterlife beliefs is that it's a part of what it means to be in the image of God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has placed eternity into the hearts of every single human being. We never outgrow both the desire for eternity and the sense that eternity lies before us. Eternity is deeply rooted within us. But that still doesn't get us to the place where we believe that either heaven or hell await every human being. And furthermore, can we have confidence that we would go to heaven and not to hell? Psalm 90 is the only psalm written by Moses. Were we to study the entire psalm, which I really commend to you, we'd discover a number of things. First, Moses had witnessed much death. Some have suggested that Numbers 13 to 14 is the background. That's the account of what happened at Kadesh Barnea when they rebelled against God's plans and were condemned for a generation to wander in the wilderness. God had indicated that the entire generation of adults who refused his commands would not enter the promised land. They die in the desert. And so over the next 40 years, Moses watched two million people die. It was the world's longest funeral march. He would have witnessed on average 50,000 funerals a year. There would have been a hundred a day. No wonder then that Moses thought much of death and of the brevity of life. For many, the most misunderstood truths of the Bible revolve around the reality of heaven and hell. Misshapen by popular culture and misinformation, many Christians fail to have a true understanding of eternity. In response, Dr. John Newfeld and Back to the Bible Canada present a new book, Heaven and Hell. As we believe the truth about eternity is so critical, for the month of November only, this important book is now available for free as our gift. Bruce Ware, professor of Christian theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote about the book, it is arguable that nothing in this life now matters more than knowing what happens then. Although this book is relatively short, it is packed. Readers will find excellent biblical exposition and incisive analysis that will inform their minds and inflame their hearts. To request your copy of Heaven and Hell today, or to send a gift to support the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. A moment's reflection tells us that we all share in Moses' experience. Think about it in terms of contemporary experience. 
Roughly speaking, about 150,000 people die globally every day. That would be the population of Sherbrooke, Quebec, or Hollywood, California, dying every day. Every week, the equivalent of Phoenix, Arizona, dies. Every year, the rough equivalent of the nation of the UK simply disappears from the earth. It's never seen again. And consequently, the earth never knows a time when people aren't in mourning. Many will wail inconsolably and be crushed in anguish. The cries of despair and defeat that rise from this planet every day and every year are almost deafening. It's amazing that many never think about it. I mean, how blind can we be to the greatest event on earth? It's a trauma that stalks the earth. While we may not notice, Moses noticed. In studying Psalm 90, we would also notice that Moses placed a great deal of emphasis on the fact that while God is altogether everlasting, we're not. Our lifespan is but a short moment in time. Soon we're no more. In Moses' own words, verse 10, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Yep, death is never far from any one of us. In studying Psalm 90, we should have noticed verses 7 to 9. We're brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, for all our days pass away under your wrath. For Moses, the reason for death is twofold. First was the issue of sin. And by that, Moses meant that we've all broken God's divine law. And in response, Moses thought that God was angry. And second, in his anger, it was God and not natural forces that had subjected all of humanity to death. The reason we die, said Moses, is that God is provoked because of human sin. Were it not for the fact that we had violated divine law, we would not be facing death. We would continue to live. It was Moses who wrote the words of Genesis 2, indicating that the day our first parents ate from the tree of good and evil, they would surely die. We're left with only a few conclusions regarding the cataclysm of the great company of men and women who die every day. Either God is simply watching but unconcerned with this appalling cataclysm, or God, in his anger, as Moses said, is putting people to death. And if Moses is right, God is presently planning to put to death every single one of the billions of people alive today so that in a very few short years, not one of us will remain. The Bible's own testimony is that Moses is right. God brings us to an end in his anger so that we end our years with a sigh. But even for those who disagree and who think that that God's merely allowing all of us to die, where does this confidence that we're all going to heaven come from? If God's not saving the human race from death right now, but is allowing this unrelenting highway of carry-on, that we must consider the question that Moses asked in Psalm 90 verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you. See, Moses invites us to consider the all-important question. Are you overwhelmed with the power of God? And if you're not, you're a fool. Psalm 90 verse 11 is a rhetorical question. The answer to the question is that no one is overwhelmed with the power and wrath of God. And that seems almost unbelievable. The groans and the cries of anguish, the weeping and the daily sadness of the human race, when we think about it, well, it's overwhelming. Death is the major issue facing the human race. Well, feeling a bit morbid and depressed? Wondering how you'll answer when someone asks you if you believe in heaven or hell? Let me suggest two prayers for those who dare ponder the power of God. So here's the first of the prayers. 
Dear Lord, I need perspective on my life. Psalm 90 verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And the idea of numbering our days may seem foreign to us. If you knew you had 100 days left to live, and you thought about it, you might wake up tomorrow and say, I have 99 days left. On the next day, you'd say that you had 98. And as the number got smaller every day, you'd become much more sober in your assessment about how you might want to think about each day and the value that you place on each day. Of course, most of us don't know how many days we have. According to Hebrews 9.27, our death is according to the appointment of God. God has your death day written on his day timer. And you're going to die right on his schedule, even though you work out and eat bean sprouts and stay gluten-free. Here's now the second prayer. Dear Lord, treat me as an object of your mercy. See, Psalm 90.13 says, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. And you might want to notice the word servants. Moses sees himself not as a rebel to God, but one who is created to serve him. And as one who willingly bows the knee to God, he's mindful he's not deserving of God's blessing. So he asks that God would treat him with pity. Every one of us should pray as follows. Have pity on me, O God, and treat me with mercy and not as my sins deserve. Having considered the power of your anger and having been allowed to see that all human death is related to your anger, what can I do but appeal to you for mercy? As Moses would see it, heaven is not the default position. He doesn't assume that we're all going there unless, you know, we do something profoundly evil. Rather, he believes that the reality of death tells us that we've already done something profoundly evil. Indeed, God is provoked and is putting us to death. Our only response must be to cry out to him for mercy. And if the Bible's testimony is to be believed, heaven is not assured. Rather, heaven is given as a gift of God's grace in spite of our sins. And that's why before we actually talk about heaven, we need to talk about how we can actually get there. In Randy Alcorn's book on heaven, he cites a Los Angeles Times survey in which for every one person who believes that they're going to hell, there are 120 who believe they're going to heaven. Yet in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. According to Jesus, the majority are going to hell and not to heaven. And that assertion accords perfectly with Moses' thoughts in Psalm 90. See, according to the Bible, not only is heaven real, but so is hell. And should we decide to move beyond the fairy tale Jesus of human imagination and read the real eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus? we'll be shocked to find out how many times he spoke about and warned about hell. He called it the hell of fire. He warned about the dangers of going there often. Matthew 10, 28, he warned us to fear God, the God who, in, in Jesus' words, has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. Indeed, in Luke 12, Jesus even said that God has the authority to throw us into hell. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it would be better for you to lose an eye than to go to hell where suffering never ends. All of us should hear that there is but one basis upon which pity can be found. Since God is not only gracious, but he's also just, justice must be satisfied. And it was. 2,000 years ago, Christ was brutally tortured on a cross. While hanging on that cross, he drank the full cup of the Father's righteous anger for the sins of the whole world. And according to Romans 4 verse 5, he did so 
in order that anyone who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, would be counted as righteous. Let me put it simply. If you'll turn from your love of sin and of sinning, and if you'll confess your sins and repent of them, and if you'll turn to Christ and believe that his horrifying death on the cross satisfies God's desire for justice, and if you surrender your life and your future and your way of life into his hands, you'll find that your name was written in the book of life. That's where mercy is found. Now, of course, all of that says more than Moses did. Moses lived before Christ, and he simply believed that he needed mercy. But now, because of Christ, we know where mercy is to be found. But don't be deceived. Heaven is not a default position. Hell is. Many an unwise person has taken their eyes off the ball and has forgotten about death, about God, the judgment to come, the reality of their need for mercy. Indeed, they've never gotten perspective on the reality of their own death and the reality that they are like grass. Many of us have allowed ourselves to become sidetracked in the things that don't count for eternity, and we've never considered the power of God's anger. We carefully consider the matter of careers, of love, of goals in life, plans to see the world, and of retirement opportunities, but we have neglected the matter of our eternal destiny. And without any wisdom at all, we've merely assumed we're all going to heaven. We've lived the life of an illusion. And if that's you, consider that you have but a short time remaining. But as you consider it, please don't despair. Come to God for mercy. That mercy is found at the cross of Christ. Thanks, John. Let me ask you, why do you think so few of us think about death or, or what happens at death, at, at least to the point of actually facing the prospect of death imminently? You know, on one hand, Ben, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea because it is that one reality that all of us are going to face. There's no running from this. Uh, I suspect that maybe part of the reason is that we have such a fear and dread of the thing that uh, we have disciplined ourselves not to think about it and the consequences that follow. Um, you know, so again, um, it, it's an amazing thing, and yet it's it's so prevalent. I mean, you know, what, what do we read about? I mean, we don't read about the reality of death. So um, I, I think um, we need to return to this theme often because we need to face the stark reality, but we also need to therefore find confidence. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Heaven and Hell, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld focus on the use of expositional teaching of the Bible, a verse-by-verse, in-depth discovery of Scripture, allowing the Word of God to speak for itself, understanding its context, eternal relevance for today, tomorrow, and for the life of every believer. Sarah wrote to say, I so appreciate this teaching by Dr. John Newfeld. This message has come at a very important time. I am grateful for the wisdom and insight. And we're grateful for all of our listeners, but also that God's timing is perfect and that the Word of God taught faithfully speaks directly into the life of every believer. And don't forget this month that Dr. John's newest book, Heaven and Hell, is being made available for free simply for the asking. So call us today to request your copy or to make a ministry gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible 
www.ca.ca.